0: Hi there, and welcome to Talking Commodities, the podcast series where leaders in commodities trading, procurement, risk management, and sourcing come to share truly actionable insights based on real-world experiences with the biggest global companies. Talking Commodities is brought to you by the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at the University of Colorado Denver Business School. The first center of its kind, offering educational programs and research focused on commodities Taught by experienced industry experts. Go to business.ucdenver.edu slash commodities to find out more. And Chai, a London technology business who help companies secure more margin, stable prices and better outcomes. Chai has developed an intuitive web application that provides users with crucial insights and commodities price predictions made by applying artificial intelligence to all of the data that matters, from satellite imagery to freight data. To get access to Chai, go to ChaiPredict.com. That's C H A I Predict.com. Now, over to Stephen Butler, Chief Commercial Officer of Chai, and Tom Brady, Executive Director of the JPMCC, for this week's episode.
1: Hi, and welcome to another podcast edition of Talking Commodities. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by Fred Seaman. Uh, Fred is currently an Executive Director in the Agricultural Markets at the CME Group. Fred has got over 20 years of experience within the CME across various markets. And Fred, thank you very much for uh, making the time to talk to us
2: today. Thank you very much for having me. Fred, uh, just to to talk about a bit about your, your background, You know, you received your PhD in applied economics from Clemson in in the late 1990s. Can you provide us with a summary of your professional career? Uh, Sure, and actually my professional
3: career started before that. Uh, I was actually a computer science undergrad and graduated with a computer science degree and spent my first eight years of my career as a software developer most of that with a hardware firm in Boulder. We made uh, tape drives uh, that back up computer systems. And I was writing test software, which sounds really boring, but it was super interesting because hardware has to communicate with computer systems on very exact timings. Uh, So that was actually my first career, but I knew that I didn't want to do that forever. And I always had plans for graduate school. And my favorite subjects were actually economics and statistics. So I thought maybe there's some economics program out there that that kind of marries the two. And I found this uh, applied economics program at Clemson and uh, specialized in, in agricultural commodities while I was there and came out. I meant to go for a master's and ended up staying, and they finally kicked me out with a PhD. But I planned to work in industry, but had an opportunity to go into academics. And that was my first three and a half years out of grad school. I was teaching at the University of Wyoming and really enjoying that. But I got word while I was there that the Chicago Board of Trade. I uh, had an opening for an economist, and that was actually the job that I coveted once I started learning about commodities in graduate school. So it was a tough decision, but, uh, and, and everyone thought I was crazy. No one leaves a tenure track faculty position for, you know, a, a position and understand, you know, the Board of Trade has been around since 1848, but at that time it was actually struggling a little bit, and there was some concern whether it would even survive. So people thought I was a little bit crazy for doing that. But, you know, 20 years later, I have been really, really happy working in an industry environment. I like the the pace of the work and the fact in my job, I oversee agricultural research and product development. And uh, the fact that it's never the same thing two days in a row It's always something different, which can be a little bit unnerving at the time, but when it's all said and done, that's very satisfying from my perspective.
2: You know, in, in terms of like some of the, the, the uh, product development activities you're working on currently, Fred, anything of note that you and the CME or kind of in your group are looking at? Yeah,
3: you know, a lot of interest. One of the things that uh, we're very interested in, and the grain and oilseed space, it has become very globalized in the past, Thirty years, the U.S. used to be the what I call the swing producer of the major agricultural commodities in the world—corn, soybeans, and wheat. When the world needed an extra metric ton of any one of those, it looked to the U.S. to produce that. And the markets have become much more global. Uh, you know, the swing producer for soybeans now is Brazil. The swing producer for wheat is uh, probably Russia and the Black Sea region and Ukraine. Uh, the swing producer for corn is the U.S., but even you know Brazil and, and the Black Sea region are, are becoming you know big players there as well. So we have these benchmarks, some of which have been around since uh, 1877. So how do we keep those benchmarks relevant? And what we have been doing is Creating new products that are regional price discovery products that are cash settled that are used in conjunction with our benchmark physically delivered contracts with delivery in the US. Um, Because, you know, go most places in the world and you ask, what's the price of soybeans? And the person will tell you the price relative to Chicago. So, Chicago is still very relevant in the global markets, but by adding these regional products, they're much, much smaller, but it gives soybean merchandisers in Brazil the ability to trade Brazil versus U.S. Black Sea wheat, uh, the ability to trade, uh, you know, wheat in the Black Sea relative to Chicago. So that's been really, really exciting. And we launched uh, Brazilian soybeans uh, last year. That was a, a really good product. On the livestock side, We have, we launched a pork cutout index uh, late last year that settles to the pork cutout. So we have lean hogs, which is the price of hogs going into a processing facility. And then we have the cutout, the price of the product coming out. And uh, also recently launched uh, something in the the cattle space uh, that's that's very similar, the, the beef cutout. So no product on that yet, but certainly potential for the future.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Fred. Um, So just a little bit more about your experiences. Is there anything that you think is key to defining or any lessons, specific lessons that you've learned along the way that you felt have become pivotal throughout your
3: career? Uh, For me, this is the first place that I landed where you know, everything clicked. The rhythm of the music was perfect to my step. So, for me, the willingness to take risk and try different things, different careers, even, and learn what you can from that. And if you decide that's not right, being willing to, to take that risk and, and move on until you find that job that is the, the right rhythm for you. And that can be different for, for different people. But I think for me, one of the pivotal things has been really that willingness to leave flexible and try different things. For someone that's curious like me and enjoys learning, that's been exciting as well. But you know, I've been happy to be in this position almost 20 years. So I don't know. Uh, you know, if the future of work has someone working someplace for, for 20 years, but uh, certainly, you know, when you find that job that has the right rhythm for you, uh, it's not something that you actively look to leave. So, uh, you know, can be for a long career.
1: I think that's really important. And that's great to hear as well, actually. It must be very satisfying to know that you'd be prepared to do another 20 years of what you're, you're doing now, you know. So we've been focusing mainly on the sort of ag side. Is there, was there anything specific from your upbringing or is, you know, is there anything that you can pinpoint where this specific interest in ags came from? Have you got, you know, do,
3: are you from a farming background or do you have an agricultural background? That is a fantastic question. I have no farming background whatsoever. I have looked back and do remember that my cousin lived on a farm and I remember enjoying visiting there. But you know, I grew up in, in town, uh, I had no ag background. It was through really luck that when I was in my graduate school, that I had the, at that time, uh, the cotton market was going crazy. Um, we were very low on cotton and cotton prices have gone as high as they have ever been. Uh, so there were some that were interested in looking at the relationship between cotton cash prices and futures prices. And at that time in my graduate career, there was a lot of different directions I could go. There being some opportunity there, I kind of stumbled across uh, agricultural commodities and have uh, found them extremely fascinating. It was Happy accident, but, you know, that's kind of one of those, if you continue to explore, hopefully you find those things that make you happy and really click with your personality. That's how I got to the agricultural side.
1: And that's been really interesting. Um, and thank you very much for sharing sharing that background. Very enlightening. I'd like to just change tack slightly and move on to just talk about the markets a little bit more in general terms. Um, so obviously the last couple of years... Have have been outliers across any commodity you want to look at. I suppose though the main, you know, metals, particularly with what's going on in the world in China, and to a, probably a lesser extent, energies have, have taken main billing in the news, and ags to a lesser extent have been sort of in the periphery. But obviously they've become quite strong over in recent months. You know, what what do you think of the markets right now? And from an agriculturalist perspective, you know, have you any thoughts or anything that you've yeah. been
3: doing from the last couple of years? What a year we have seen in the the agricultural commodity markets! Last year, this time, uh, we were in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, Commodity prices were super low. The confidence in the industry was very low, and something started to happen that a lot of people didn't foresee. I didn't foresee it, for one, but. China has been fighting for several years. First and foremost, they have the largest hog herd in the world. But they've been fighting for years. Uh, pandemic in the, in the hog, hogs, African swine fever, and uh, that just decimated their hog herd. And they're starting to recover for that, from that. And uh, you know, there is this large number of hogs that uh, you know, they are now producing as they get past that pandemic. And the amount of feed to feed those hogs, the demand for that just went crazy. And China started buying soybeans and corn that, you know, should have been writing on the wall, but we were at such a point, you know, you get in the, the the low, the, the bottom of a market always feels like you're trapped and there's no way out. So that was One thing that was going on, you know, this incredible demand from from China to feed their growing hog herd. And then also a lot of uh, government directives for supporting biodiesel and renewable diesel was causing uh, the demand for fats and oils to be a feedstock for, uh, you know, those biofuels started to really ramp up. And it was kind of the combination, this robust demand for fats and oils and for feed in association with some smaller than expected crop sizes around the world that we ended up in a situation where the stocks to use. That's one of the things we look at, you know, the amount of available stocks relative to the underlying use uh, went to record or has been trending to record lows. So we, you know, prices started to, to rally and, you know, we are in that situation right now. The weather in North America, the weather this past fall and winter in South America, you know, can move the markets pretty significantly every single day. So we're, you know, in a position with high prices and a lot of volatility. So risk management is really key right now. And just to kind of to add where we come in a year, CME Group partners with Purdue University to publish an agricultural barometer, and that's available on you know at Purdue. Just Google it; it's really interesting. But it is sentiment, both current sentiment and forward-looking sentiment from farmers, and it's updated every month. And we were at really really low levels of sentiment last year this time and since then you know we've been at or near record highs in that sentiment index so that's that's pretty long way to go in uh you know a short year how those those markets have rallied and kind of what's going on underlying them
2: thanks for that you know what do you think's next for the 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 ag and broader commodity markets
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm expert mostly on agriculture, but other commodity markets follow similar rhythms, right? So, you know, we're in good times right now. But one thing we always know is the good times won't last. The problem is we don't know how long, you know, until they go away. And when you're in that process, you know, volatility is very high. So, you know, the the need for um, managing that and taking advantage of the situation that we're in now, knowing that it is at some point going to revert to the mean. You know, if there's one thing that the farmers in the world absolutely do is they react to price signals. Those price signals are, are pretty strong right now. You know, how long it goes? I do not know. Uh, that's for sure. I'm the last person to try to predict market tops or bottoms. Uh, I bought a house at the market top back in, uh, you know, right before the
2: the housing bust. So definitely don't want my uh, timing recommendations. Fred, how do you keep on top of the markets, uh, you know, with, with your position? And, you know, do, do you have any tips for, you know, folks looking to develop their understanding of the idiosyncrasies of commodities? Yeah, you know, um, I do a lot
3: of reading. Our website has a lot of materials. One of the things we do is produce content for our website, but, you know, there's daily market commentary that is available that are really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, following that for a couple of weeks, you really start to understand kind of the, the give and flow of uh, the agricultural markets, whether your interest is, you know, on the grain side, the dairy side, the livestock side. I also read, you know, some of the, the market commentary. We've got subscriptions to a couple of, of paid services. Just we're not allowed to trade. So I have no dog in the fight, but it's really good for my job to understand when I'm talking with the customer what's going on underlying the market. So that's really good for understanding. And you know, a free source just Google country elevator and find a country elevator in your county or state. Almost every one of them has a a website and they usually have a news feed from someone like DTN or something like that. You can get free agricultural news from all of those, plus market commentary and commodity pricing. So I've
2: done that and find that really, really uh, helpful as well. You know, as we've been uh, speaking with you know producers and and you know commodity investors, and, and now yourself, Fred. You know, ESG is becoming more more and more to the forefront. How is this changing? You know, the CME. Yeah, uh, that's a fantastic question and one that I
3: am formulating answers to, but I don't have great answers in the agricultural space yet. Over on the energy side, and I can't speak to, to, you know, with any great deal of knowledge, they've been launching products that are ESG specific products. But how we're looking at, how I'm looking at it is, so we've got these benchmarks, right? How can we incorporate environmental and animal welfare types of protocols into our existing markets um, so that they remain relevant. You know, these contracts have been around, like I said, some of them since 1877. So one of the things is it's really important for for those benchmark agricultural futures products to evolve with the underlying cash markets. And that's how the cash market is evolving. Uh, The reason that's a difficult question now on the agricultural side is the ag industry is really on board with this, but there's no globally or even nationally accepted protocols yet. We're gonna to get to that, but we're not there yet. Uh, so that's kind of one aspect of things that you know we're looking at. The second thing is I believe that there's going to be ESG specific products. Now, on the agricultural side, you know you have farmers, and you know a lot of uh, what they're doing, you know, growing crops have carbon sequestration attributes to it. So, I think there's going to be products in that space eventually. The problem on the agricultural side is how do you verify a lot of these practices that you know could earn you know carbon credits? So. I think at some point there will be a standard with verification that will allow uh, those kinds of things to become commoditized and traded. I don't think we're there yet on the agricultural side, but we're definitely evolving that direction.
0: How will a low carbon future impact the world's biggest companies? Learn answers to commodity questions like this with experts from the forefront of research and industry at the J.P. Morgan Center for Commodities at the CU Denver Business School. Join us on Wednesday, July 21st for an online information session on academic courses, non-degree certificates, and professional education offerings. You can also visit our website at business.ucdenver.edu commodities for more information.
1: Just following on that question, you know, as you say, things haven't maybe moved in the agricultural's on the ESG narrative as yet. But, you know, you highlight that the, the market's been around since the 1800s. Um, you know, a lot of people would argue that it's more recently that you've seen a lockstep change in the industry. You know, since you've been involved, in the, you know, for over 20 years, do you feel there has been huge changes? And, and what are the main ones that you've seen?
3: I've got a really good one for you there. So my tenure overlapped the change in how we trade. So, you know, for 1877 into the 2000s, the main way to trade commodity futures was in a trading pit with, you know, traders on a trading floor, all waving their arms and, uh, you know, uh, screaming at one another and it looked like pure chaos. And in fact, it was, uh, you know, a trip to the Board of Trade when I was in grad school that made me think, man, I know I'm not the temperament to be a trader like that, but I love these markets. I would love to work in a place like that. So that's how we traded, you know, it was, and everyone's seen, uh, you know, the, the pits packed with, you know, mostly large, mostly sweaty men waving their arms and screaming at one another, uh, trading commodities. In 2006, we started listing our agricultural futures electronically during daytime hours. So I got to witness the migration from this physical trading pit to electronic trade, and it became you know, 95% electronic, and we closed the futures open outcry pits, and we saw the same thing happen in options. The options pits were still around, but uh, with COVID, uh, we recently announced that that even they would be closing. So I, I've gotten to see that translation from really physical-based trade to virtual trade, and and that's. You know, everyone I love the pit uh, and I miss it, but we let the customers decide and the customers overwhelmingly liked the quickness of electronic matching and getting your verification of your trade right away. And also being able to see the depth of the market, you know, when you're trading on our electronic trading platform you see the 10 best bids and the depth at each one of those and the 10 best offers and the depth at one of those. And if I've got a 100 lot that I want to execute, I can see how I can, uh, you know, execute that in, in an electronic trade. So the, you know, the industry really chose that. So how we traded has really evolved. And just as I mentioned earlier, the globalization uh, used to be something would happen in rural Kazakhstan that would affect the global market for wheat, let's say. And that would eventually make its way into you know, the agricultural futures price. But now with electronic trade, you've got people connected around the world you know, during all market hours. And once that you know, weird thing happens in rural Kazakhstan, it gets picked up immediately. So, I think some people probably interpret it that, well, the markets are more volatile. Uh, I would argue that the markets are more global and they're more connected and the price reacts more quickly than it did in the past. So, really, really major change uh, from, you know, I think everyone's perspective. It's just how quickly the, the how we trade has changed how quickly the market reacts to global news. Sure.
1: Okay. Thanks for that. No, that's very interesting. And just on that point, actually, um, you know, talking about the interpretation of information and, you know, how you you mentioned earlier on about the produce sentiment index or how people are reacting to price signals. You know, what do you think from a sort of commodities price risk manager's perspective, what do you think should be top of their agenda for the remainder of 2021?
3: Yeah. Um, You know, it's hard to envision that the volatility is going to go away anytime soon, right? So having a disciplined hedge program is extremely important right now, and I think for the rest of 2021. So I think from a merchandiser's perspective or or a practitioner's perspective, making sure that you understand, uh, you know, your cash price relationships, your local cash price relationships to futures and remaining very disciplined in your hedging strategy is probably, I think, the the, the key right now. You know, with a volatile market, if you get a little bit over your skis, uh, you can get hurt pretty badly. So, uh, you know, discipline, I, I think. And, and I'm not a hedger, you know, I work for the exchange, but you know, one of our jobs is to, you know, create these contracts where people can, can, uh, you know, exchange risk from a a hedger to a speculator. So maintaining that discipline, uh, I, I think is key and just being careful in a really volatile market.
1: And that's a very important point actually. And you make that, you know, you are working for the exchange and you're sort of on the inside looking out, you probably get to speak to a lot of different types of people that interact within the ags markets. And you know, as you say, managing your risk is very important. Are there any sort of consistent issues or mistakes that you've noticed that risk management professionals or traders that are new to the markets make that you would tend to
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now on the agricultural side. It's rare. I'm sure there are mistakes that uh, you know young traders make. I have no doubt about it. I don't have you into that. Most of the major agricultural commodity trading firms have excellent training and they follow specific hedging strategies. So, you know, someone new in one of those organizations, they're going to be extremely well-trained, and you know, the potential for major screw-ups is pretty low, such that you know I don't hear about them. At the farm level, uh, probably the biggest mistake that you see, and there's some fantastic farmer hedgers out there, but if you get a little greedy and you think you can you know, predict that market top or that market bottom, Uh, You can, uh, you know, uh, you can really make some major mistakes doing that. So, you know, speaking earlier about a disciplined hedging program that is, you know, maintaining your strategy regardless of where the underlying markets are. You know, this is this is when I buy. This is when I sell. Uh, and I'm not going to get great greedy and, and think that, you know, I can get uh, more of a market top or a market bottom. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be some, you know, flexibility in your hedge program. There's different hedging strategies that have you put on more protection at certain points and certain underlying market conditions and less in others. You know, that's fine. But the the, the point is coming up with a hedge program that's comfortable for you, that has the kind of risk exposure that you're comfortable with, and then sticking with that and not deviating from it. I think most of the mistakes that we finally do hear about generally are associated with someone deviating from their, their hedge program.
2: But the, you know, we usually kind of move to the the, uh, the, the final section just on advice for, for our listeners. Do you have any, you know, in terms of that, do you have any advice for people just starting their careers? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I hate to think everyone would be exactly like me, but I think
3: it's really great when you're young to try different things. So, you know, there's a, a lot of different ways you can go in the you know, the the commodity space. So, you know, pursue many of them and and see what sounds appealing. And if it sounds appealing, um, give it a try. And if it's not what you thought it was, it's okay. Uh, You know, you can do something else. So the main thing is, is really getting that experience and learning about the underlying markets and how they operate is once you have that knowledge, there's a lot of different things that, uh, you know, you can do with that and find something else or maybe you're perfectly happy. Um, But I would just encourage people to be curious and don't limit their focus into, you know, one particular thing. You can get a lot of experience doing a lot of different things.
1: One other question, Fred, I have is just around interviewing. And obviously, this is an important part when people are starting out in their career. They probably tend to do more at the start than they do later on. on You know, is there any advice you can give to some of our younger listeners? Is there anything that you specifically look for when you interview people or when you're looking to hire um, new colleagues?
3: Uh, Yeah, um, kind of in the screening process, I'm, I'm looking for good technical skills. So that would be, you know... At least intermediate statistical methods, you know, someone that can, can do statistical work at an intermediate level. That's 95% of what we do. That's one thing, some technical skills, uh, some verbal skills, the ability to write well. I can't emphasize enough how much writing well will go into a successful career. We do a lot of of analysis and close work, but the ability to communicate that to both customers, both internal and external management is really, really key. That would be uh, another thing. But when I'm interviewing, I kind of do that through the resume. I can get an idea of, oh, this person's really good technically. Oh, this person, you know, they have some writing samples. So when I'm actually interviewing, I'm interviewing for fit as much as anything. An interview wouldn't be a whole lot different from this podcast. I like having a conversation with someone and tr- just trying to get a sense of how they fit. And I've got a small group. I've just got three economists, but how they fit in that group. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want them to be carbon copies. So I I'm, I, I guess I'm not looking for anything specific with related to that, but I really want a good colleague. Uh, So that's kind of what I'm looking for when I'm interviewing. I've either been lucky, which is probably the case, or that's been a pretty good method because I've I've got some really good hires and no bust yet, but uh, I'm sure at some point I'll have one.
2: Yeah, even if it's locked, hopefully it'll continue. Great, Brett. You know, in terms of uh, any advice for commodity companies or, you know, any exchanges to increase the diversity of the workforce?
3: Yeah, I I think uh, the exchange, and I am no expert on this, but I'm a big believer that that diversity of thought is really, really important. And I, I want people that, you know, can approach problems in different ways. And and I think, you know, a diverse workforce helps with respect to that. So I know the exchange is working particularly hard to, you know, increase the diversity across the entire exchange. But I am, uh, you know, in my individual hiring, I am always open to any kind of experience that I think really is helpful in a problem solving setting. Because that's kind of what we do, right? You know, creating a new product, that's that's really problem solving for market participants that don't have a, a product. And you know conducting maintenance on the, the existing products, you know, what can we tweak in the trading rules that you know fixes this problem? So yeah, that, that's kind of how I think about it. And it, it's really exciting that, uh, you know, the exchange particularly is, is also really on board with diversifying
2: our workforce. Last question, Fred, you know, f- you know for the students in, in the audience, you know, what types of courses or skills would you recommend them to them, you know, to, to, to enter and try to and be successful in their commodity sector careers?
3: Yeah, I always
2: thought that this would change, but
3: being a spreadsheet master is really helpful. And the vast majority of our work, you know, uh, as a practitioner, I don't have to, you know, pass a uh, you know a strict double-blind review in a you know an academic journal article. We have to move a little more quickly, being really good with the spreadsheet. One of the things, and I don't have this skill, but a couple of people on my team do, and I absolutely love it, is Tableau. So that's been a really hot thing internally. I've noticed that everyone internally has their own way of accessing data. And I'm thinking of, you know, price data. That's what we work with predominantly. So, you know, being familiar at least, cause everyone's gonna be a little bit different in uh, data collection. Both, you know, public sources particularly, but also kind of having that that general knowledge of, uh, you know, working with data, so that when you get to a particular firm, you'll learn, you know, how they store data uh, more quickly. And then one I I mentioned earlier, anything that you can do to improve your writing,
2: I think, really, hook a million miles. Fred, can't thank you enough for for being with us today. Really appreciate your time and just great insights and great conversation with you too. Thank you very much, Fred, for sharing your uh, experience. Thanks for having me.
3: Hopefully, uh, listeners will find it fruitful.
0: So that's it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to come on the show as a future guest and you think you've got something contrarian to say, Please do get in touch. My email address is jake at shypredict.com. Today's show was written and co-hosted by Stephen Butler and Tom Brady. Special thanks to Erica Hyman of the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at UC Denver and Maria Valentina, who produced the podcast. Thanks very much. See you next time.